Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. What I'm saying to you this morning, my friend, even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, Go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We uh, mark today, observe Martin Luther King's birthday today. And, uh, of course, as we do every year, uh, some clips of the uh, favorite offerings of King uh, during his time as a civil rights leader. And uh, the Street Sweeper speech is always a favorite. classic, that riff in particular. Be the best of who you are. Yeah, it was um, a uh, speech he gave at a middle school uh, in 67, I think, oh, in cool. Philly. Philly Middle School in 67, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, so over the weekend... Speaking of King, there was a new statue unveiled that is supposed to be a tribute to him. Oh, it's supposed um, to be him hugging his wife, Carrie Scott King. Yeah, after the Nobel, after he won the Nobel Peace Prize in '64. Right, the arms and shoulders and hands of King uh, hugging his wife, Carrie Scott King. That's what this statue is supposed to depict. It's uh, getting uh, mixed reviews, to be generous, because it um, doesn't immediately convey, even if you know that context, what the description of the sk- the sculpture is supposed to convey, does it? No, it's uh, it looks a little phallic, Dan. Uh, people and people that saw it were just appalled, like, oh, how could you let this happen? And I was showing various family members yesterday this statue, and if you're watching on our Matrix Home Solution, you could see the picture that I was supposed to reflect and then the actual statue and uh it looks uh i don't know you want to say it well i <laughs> mean he's holding up something yeah it, it uh or hitting on the buttocks is what i first thought yeah there's been a couple of uh right references to interpretations that involve Ooh. private parts not uh shoulders and hands but um interesting piece from seneca scott over at compact mag um, Coretta Scott King was Seneca Scott's first cousin. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure you've seen it, she writes of the Boston sculpture. Looks more like a pair of hands hugging a beefy penis than a special <laughs> moment shared by the iconic people. Okay, so there you go. That's Seneca Scott's there you go. Uh, observation, <laughs> not mine. Uh, the piece, a masturbatory homage to my family, homage in quotation marks. She's not super thrilled about it. No. Created by the organization Embrace Boston, the sculpture has inspired mad jokes on Twitter, rightly so. But for my family, it's rather insulting because Coretta was my first cousin, my grandfather's niece, and the daughter of my great uncle, Obadiah Scott. Martin, meaning Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. married up. Coretta came from, and, and I didn't um, know some of the details about this, but uh, Seneca Scott ran, Coretta came from a distinguished family with a significant legacy in her own right. There's a reason she kept the Scott name. We were a black family that owned land, lots of it. Martin knew what he was doing when he pursued her, signaling intentions to marry from the outset. Uh, after his assassination, of course, Coretta Scott King created a legacy of her own, fighting against apartheid in South Africa, among other things. Now back to the statue, Seneca Scott. $10 million were wasted to create a masturbatory metal homage to my legendary family members, one of the all-time greatest American families. Still, the Boston debacle could be a blessing in disguise by exposing the insidiousness of astroturfed woke movements that have come to dominate black America. Three one two anyone... six. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey tap pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line six four six three six. Type in DA then a quick comment. Uh, she goes on to uh, ask, "How could anyone fail to see this was a major blank move, pun intended, to bring very few, if any, tangible benefits to struggling black families?" Consider this our declaration of interdependence, declares the Embrace Boston website. What does that even mean? Black families in America who need help don't care for more woke slogans. They need jobs that pay bills and keep up with food and energy costs that are rising faster than ever before for most of us. Building expensive, stupid new statues with no faces on them and tearing down others for no good reason are part of the same performative altruism and purity pageants that are mainstays of the woke left. So now Boston has a big bronze penis statue that's supposed to represent black love in its purest and most devotional form. And Seneca this was no act. Yeah. This, let me finish. This is no accident. The woke algorithm is racist and classist. Therefore, its programming will always produce things that harm black and poor people. This sculpture is an especially egregious example of the woke machine's callousness and vanity. Hopefully it will show more black people that these progressive just aren't in this for our benefit. Wow. And he went on to I say that, make, yeah, waste of money and it should be melted down, which it should be. I, I uh, maybe would have expected that from Alveda King, um, uh, niece of Martin Luther King Jr. We've had on this show because of her pro-life work and her willingness to criticize uh, the uh, – new Marxists that do nothing for to advance the interests of black families in America. But, uh, wow, Seneca Scott's a former organizer with SCIU. I didn't know that. And, uh, and, and yet delivers this hammering on the left about the statue and using the statue as a jumping-off point to offer a much stronger general commentary, as you just heard me in recounting 
Seneca Scott's words in this op-ed. Wow. How about that? That's a way to start off your Martin Luther King Day. Uh, 312-642-5600, Answer Line. Rich in Indian Head Park here in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Why didn't they just have a statue of the two, uh, an actual statue of Dr. King and his wife embracing each other right. instead of some abstract uh, pile of junk that it looks like? I mean, I, you can't even tell what it is. How does that uh, put the, their lives together? Uh, well, right. Yeah, I think, thanks for the call, Rich. I think that's what uh, Seneca Scott is sorting, is starting to, uh, uh, is, is getting to, which is uh, the statue is about them. It's not about um, my cousin Coretta Scott King and her husband Martin Luther King. Joe in Hoffman Estates. Good morning. Um, this is exactly why Malcolm X said that uh, the biggest threat to black people is the white liberal stuff like this. Well, that's right. Uh, thanks for the call, Joe. That's that was from most famously from his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail talking about, uh, you know, the, the white moderate um, being more of an enemy to the black civil rights struggle than the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Craig Mount Greenwood. Good morning, uh, Dan and Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Well, the left—they uh, don't agree with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. They don't—they do just the opposite. He taught uh, true equality and everything, and not, uh, like um, not being uh, racist and everything, and having everybody equal. So this statue is pretty darn fitting because it's just a—it's just a mess of basically twisting up, twisting up who he is and what he stood for, or anything. No face, no nothing, just a mess and everything like that. And that, and uh, they should be. Uh, they should be disgusted with this uh, blasted thing. Thanks for the well, talker. But Seneca Scott is is a he, not a she. A he, I think right. I refer to him as she. Seneca Scott's a man. Yes, well, like a, a meme. Of, Somebody like, said if it, it's a meme, if you have to explain it, it didn't work. And clear, but what somebody else was some rapper from Canada said, why don't and it's not Drake? Why don't they go into the black community and show them this an artist rendition of it first before they spent ten million dollars on it? Because everybody oh, would well, have said I'm, this. This is it doesn't work for us. I don't. I don't. I don't know what going to the black community means. I, I hate that phrase. Like it's monolithic. You know, forty million black people in this country have the same viewpoint. Clearly, they don't. And uh, what percentage do you have to go to to get uh, the black community's opinion on something? That's a, that phrase is also something. What does that even mean? Like the Declaration of Interdependence. But um, maybe the family. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> I mean, maybe Seneca. Start there. Uh, you know, and and just another favorite uh, riff of King's. This was um, uh, his last public address to uh, a congregation at Mason Temple in Memphis. What he wanted from America, which is frankly something that he again, as he did so often, transcends race and every other identitarian characteristic, and is something we could demand. We sh- we could aspire to receive today all we say to america is be true to what you said on paper if i lived in china or even russia or any totalitarian country maybe i could understand some of these illegal injunctions Maybe I could understand the denial of certain 
basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. And, of course, he's referring to the founding documents. Boy, does that have wide and persistent application. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the Democrat socialists were uh, out in force on the Sunday talkies over the weekend, trying to uh, aid and abet uh, the... Biden administration's damage control operation over the classified documents. And it gets uh, increasingly difficult when uh, you do another cursory glance of the House and you find uh, more classified documents, as happened uh, on Thursday night and was revealed on Saturday. Five more classified documents, the reporting goes, found in a room adjacent to the garage where the vintage Corvette is kept, where other Classified documents were inadvertently misplaced there by someone who shall remain unknown at this point. It's just getting a little ridiculous at this point. But why are Biden's personal attorneys who have no security clearance searching his house rather than the FBI? Because it's his attorneys that found it. Right. And then they call the 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 personal counsel who does have security clearance to come obtain them. Yeah, that question was asked a couple of times uh, to a couple of different Democrat socialists on the Sunday talkies. You didn't get much of an answer. They were more focused, uh, of course, the combination of the the hosts and the guests, you know, the PR flax and the people they work for, more focused on trying to distinguish the Biden classified docs case from the trunk Trump classified docs case, of course, because they have to make sure that you understand these are completely different situations that have completely different facts. And so 
there's a possibility that the different outcomes from these concurrent investigations. And if there are different outcomes, like, say, for example, Trump is indicted and Biden isn't, then that's totally legitimate. So they have to sort of set the table for the possibility that they're seeking. Although, again, especially now, this was my position before the revelation about Biden's uh, class, the classified documents in Biden's possession. But especially now, the best thing that could happen to Trump is to be indicted. (laughs) The best thing. Politically, I mean, it's not enjoyable, um, but politically, I I can't think of a better outcome from these competing investigations than Trump being indicted and Joe Biden not be. From Trump's perspective, for his political aspirations in 2024. Uh, So maybe the left, uh, yet again, better reconsider what they think they want, but they're not over the weekend. They weren't over the weekend. Representative Dan Goldman from uh, New York, he was on Face the Nation with the... Margaret Brennan is sort of like the female version of Chuck Todd. She's slightly less obnoxious, but equally self-righteous. So she uh, brought Dan Goldman on to help do his bidding and the big guy's bidding by extension. And uh, here's Dan Goldman explaining how the same standard is applicable here. Oh, really? But, of course, that standard, uh, using that standard of analysis, uh, you reach very different conclusions about Trump versus Biden. You had an op-ed last year um, about the 45th president and the issues with classified material, and you laid out four factors you said prosecutors need to look at. Intent to distribute, clear knowledge of importance, volume of the material, and whether or not investigators had been lied to. Is that the set of criteria you also think President Biden needs to be judged on? It absolutely is, and I think if you go through those criteria in each one, They do not apply. We don't have any indication that President Biden knew about them. He certainly has demonstrated no intent to deceive or obstruct the government by keeping them. And that's in direct contrast to President Trump, who refused to cooperate, who refused to comply with a subpoena, and who ultimately forced the Department of Justice to execute a search warrant to retrieve the classified documents. When you look at this very clearly and you compare them, there is no comparison. Those four factors, I believe, apply to President Trump, and none of them apply to President Biden. And that is where we need to be uh, centering this conversation. It's fascinating. So then, um, because earlier in the interview, he, even though he was initially opposed to a special counsel being appointed to investigate uh, the Biden handling of classified docs, he's now fine with it. But then, according to that analysis, that's not needed because he's already drawn the conclusion that none of the... uh, criteria he sets forth in analyzing a case like the handling of like Biden's handling of classified documents. Um, those are all non applicable because because he says so. Uh, we know okay. nothing. Oh, the only thing we know about this is what Biden's personal attorneys have told us. Right. And his special counsel on Saturday came forward, you know, about this fourth document finding. And this is this is about, I mean, do you, do you really think that this is happening, Dan? Because the attorneys are, are searching the, the premises is home in Delaware. So if they identify a document that has a classified marking, they stop immediately and do not review it and suspend further search of files in that box. 
Well, you forget the lawyers for yeah. a second, other than to say, all we know, we don't know why this began. All we know is what they did once they came upon these classified documents. So we're not starting at the beginning of this story. Why was the, uh, the, the, the search for classified documents initiated in the first place? We don't know the answer to that. And why didn't Nobody's they talking. disclose it? And, 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 and he didn't know anything about it. So again, borrowing from Jonathan Turley, these documents keep inadvertently being placed in Biden's possession from his home to his fake think tank at the University of Penn. He doesn't know anything about it. They're in, they're in his, his library. Doesn't know anything about that. Didn't, never looked at them. Doesn't know the contents of them. And uh, again, on advice of counsel, he's not going to ask his attorneys about the contents of the documents. Is that plausible? Is, uh, is that statement dispositive of the issue? Hardly. And then NBC was reporting that he, uh, Biden was upset, quote, at the sloppiness of his aides who packed the forms years ago. So, of course, the, the Bidens are going to blame everybody else but themselves. They're going to deny, 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 because they're sick and, people. They don't care. And then going all the way back, going all the way back to the actual beginning, mm-hmm. the decision-making in terms of what documents to remove from the White House. He's vice president. Who made those calls and why? In, in you can ask uh, President Trump the same questions. I'm sure he will be asked the same questions at some point. But we don't know the answers to any of this. Uh, again, all we know is what his attorneys are telling us through some statements as well as through uh, interpretations by the D.C. press corps. We're starting in the middle of the story. And that's... Curious, to say the least. Jamie Raskin, who is uh, congressman from Maryland, yeah, he is one of the more obnoxious and unapologetic conspiracy theorists uh, in Congress. He is, I think, right there, maybe just a half a turn below Adam Schiff in terms of the reckless disregard for the facts that he has. Um, even though I believe he's an attorney as well, just as Schiff is. And um, unapologetic about it, completely unapologetic about it. Never need, never need. So um, here is uh, his uh, review applying the standard of analysis that is appropriate, in his view, to Biden versus Trump, because the only conversation they want to have is Biden versus Trump. And to make sure you understand, as I said again, that the Trump case and the Biden case are completely different because the attorneys, upon obtaining classified documents wrongly in Biden's possession, turn them over to the National Archive, and that sort of makes everything okay. That's what they say. Wasn't Biden totally irresponsible with classified information? And aren't we right to wonder, to use Biden's words, quote, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? Well, and I think we'll get to the bottom of all of that. I mean, that's why special counsel... Uh, has been appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland. He did the right thing there to look into it. Um, You know, I'm hoping that we will keep a sense of symmetry about our analysis of these situations and a sense of proportion about the underlying offenses. There's some people who are trying to compare uh, having a government document um, that should no longer be in your possession to inciting 
uh, a violent insurrection against the government of the United States. And those are obviously completely different things. That's apples and oranges. Yeah, totally. Apples and oranges, Mm -hmm. because that Biden having classified documents uh, is not a big deal because January 6th. Right, exactly. Everything's about January 6th. He was vice president at the time. He shouldn't have them anyway. Who was making a comparison or or, um, uh, who was saying that? I I don't even I'm trying to actually process the the point that he's making. (laughs) That some people are trying to say that this is Biden's January 6th or something like that. Who's saying that? You know who's saying that? The left is saying that. No. Jamie Raskin is saying that. This is just, again, whole cloth. Whole cloth. And it's an opportunity to remind you about, in their view, their terminology, the January 6th insurrection that was uh, uh, incited by Trump. So now we're not even talking classified docs to classified docs anymore. Jamie Raskin wants you to believe, hey, to talk about Biden's handling classified docs and to try to compare that to uh, January 6th. I mean, that's just that's apples and oranges. What? January 6th, January 6th, Trump, 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 Trump. Then you don't have to talk about these particulars of the Biden case and you don't have to contemplate questions like why are we starting in the middle of this story i'm uh i'm with speaker mccarthy on this one what's real concerning to me is how justice is applied and is it applied equally yeah okay bill and skokie hey uh dan and amy love your show been listening for years you guys are awesome um this thing is so obvious to me this is obama pulling these purse strings right now. This is all Obama. Obama could have come out and stood up for his uh, former vice president, and he didn't. Obviously, this is a a power play to to get rid of Biden. Um, That's all I got. I mean, like, I I mean, thanks for the call. But, you know, I know that's I mean, we've mentioned it, the idea that this is could be in part the, the, you know, the professional political skull uh, duggerous set uh, inside uh, inside D.C. moving on Biden to sideline him before he announces he's going to run for re-election or something like that because he clearly is not capable of running again and he's not going to. And um, maybe he needs a little persuading and so that's part of it. I mean, that's complete supposition. There's no evidence to support that. No, claim. but it's what I've thought the whole time. I mean, these documents are going to ruin his reelection bid, and it's planned. Yeah, they think I mean, through these, everything these, they're sinister. These documents are going to. Yeah, they're also you also people also give them credit for being way more competent than they actually are. Uh, they uh, are able to get away with things for an extended period of time because they have built so much infrastructure where they protect each other. So the Russian collusion thing can persist years after it's debunked. But that's not a competence. That's infrastructure combined with willful blindness of a certain percentage of the American people. Don't overestimate their competence when it comes to this conspiracy theorizing. So uh, this is going to sideline him any more than wherever whatever House Republicans may unearth about the Biden Inc. operation, starting with Hunter and leading to the big guy. Who knows? I mean, the 
You think uh, there are a lot of votes that are determined by the handling of classified information? Uh, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that to keep people's attention. It's got to be something that speaks to a deeper corruption. And we may yet get there. But um, so maybe, you know, maybe there are forces at work to sideline him. Who knows? I mean, you may have Joe Biden already uh, bought into the idea he's not going to run again. But you got to keep up appearances so you're not a lame duck uh, prematurely. Oh, that's true. We just we don't know. I mean, it's like I said, it's possible. And the the palace intrigue is always interesting, uh, interesting fodder for speculation. But we don't know. We do know what the D.C. press corps is doing. And so let's I'd rather focus on what we're seeing and call that out for the purposes of explaining and highlighting and putting side by side. So people who whose eyes are still covered by scales, perhaps we'll have those scales fall at some point between now and the next election. So you you heard Tapper pretending to be a journalist and press Jamie Raskin so he could invoke January 6th. You heard uh, Margaret Brennan uh, propping up this standard of analysis. And so, hey, we're even handed here. And we're uh, bumping up the facts in each case against this inviolate standard. And, of course, Trump fails the standard and Biden clears the standard because Dan Goldman says so. Okay. And then this exchange between Chuck Todd, that yapping terrier meet the press with the room temperature IQ, and Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. I don't even know why Ron Johnson bothers. Why did he go on that show? Um. This is uh, discussing the Hunter Biden investigation that uh, Congress, well, Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley have undertaken, that House Republicans will undertake under Jim Comer, uh, representative from Kentucky, and uh, Chuck Todd trying to run interference on all of that with respect to Biden, Inc., because that's what the Hunter investigation is fundamentally about it's about joe the big guy mr 10 percent. and the way they do this is to say well wait a second there's a doj investigation going on so now you are going to have congressional investigations into this you republicans and isn't that just much, so much political grandstanding you're going to attempt to criminalize something the department of justice has yet to criminalize and there's some amazing things that uh, chuck todd says in this exchange based on everything we know about Hunter that's in the public domain at present, much less what is to come. But again, nine months of the FBI setting up the process of, of sabotaging Hunter Biden's computer, which we now know is authentic. Uh, our investigation was accurate, but we were smeared. Uh, all that information was censored and suppressed, and the FBI, in their actions, impacted the election to a far greater extent anything that Russia or China ever could hope to accomplish. These are facts, and that's all I'm interested in. I'm interested in the truth, yeah. and I think can the American I, public I, deserves it, the truth. It, and, these, and then, again, these investigations, yeah. they cover Senator, up the truth. Senator, do you have a crime that you think Hunter Biden committed? Because I've yet to see anybody explain it, it is not a crime <laughs> to make money off your last name. <laughs> 
Oh. So, Chuck, you ought to read the Marco Polo report, uh, where they detail all kinds of potential crimes. You know, Senator Grassley oh, actually oh, oh, let me just stop you there. The, potential. Uh, about, this about, is about 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 potential about, about, about thirty thousand about thirty thousand dollars. I mean, it, Chuck, 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 is it a crime to be uh, soliciting and purchasing? Uh, prostitution in potentially European sex trafficking operations. Is that a crime? Because Chuck Grass and I laid out about $30,000 uh, paid by Hunter Biden to uh, those types of, of individuals over uh, December 2018, 2019, about $30,000. This is about the same time that President Biden uh, offered to pay about $100,000 of Hunter Biden's bills. I mean, again, that's that's just some information. I, I don't know exactly. Here's what I don't get. All right, Senator. It doesn't doesn't really look. I, on the, it, it sounds sleazy, as you know. I'll what. take your. I'll, t I'll, t I'll take it at your word that you're ethically bothered by Hunter Biden. Oh. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's video of him waving a gun around naked with a prostitute. Uh, right. Um, drug dealer, not or drug addict. I'm sorry, not supposed to be having owning a weapon. Is it's not a crime to make money off your name. That's the Hunter Biden story. That's the Biden Inc. story. Is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Boy, isn't Chuck Todd, isn't he just so delightfully naive? And um, the important thing there, too, is just to, to give you a sense of exactly what they're doing to try to run interference. And also, uh, the FBI's role in the Hunter Biden investigation, and by extension, Joe Biden— Separate and distinct, that's the, the well, all, all things Hunter Biden related, but particularly the uh, question of whether or not Joe Biden is compromised or was compromised or was illicitly trafficking in American secrets to enrich his family and by extension himself. And then now consider this when you talk about the equal application of justice with respect to the former president and the current president's handling of classified information and the FBI's role in any sort of uh, special counsel investigation, the, the, the two competing special counsel investigations. You have all of these agencies that are suspect now because of their handling of these two individuals and their orbits with politics in mind. And this is why... You have uh, questions being offered about uh, Merrick Garland and the judiciousness and the propriety of the approaches being taken with respect to the two. Very, very interesting. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Mobile. 
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, no COVID amnesty. No COVID amnesty. No. no. I got this uh, email from a buddy of mine. Last weekend in Chicago, I went to Old St. Pat's for Sunday Mass. After walking through the trash-strewn West Loop to church, I found it very pleasant, very welcoming. Nice start to my Sunday. Music programming was beautiful. This morning, my wife and I went to... Uh, Christ the King in Dallas, I split time. Also very nice. No music program like St. Saint Pat's, but a nice pro, nice uh, parish. The striking difference, zero mask wearers in Dallas versus old St. Pat's where roughly about a third of the crowd was masked up. Roughly the same distribution of elderly, middle-aged, and young people with kids between the two churches. There were whole families at St. Pat's that came in wearing masks. Mm-hmm. It was remarkable that in the span of a week between these two dem-run cities, there should be such an other world, other life feel. Yeah, well, that's the depths of Chicago, even when you compare it to other big blue cities like Dallas. Which is uh, why it's always nice to do stop, look, and listen, and we will continue to. Aided and abetted by uh, friends like John Stossel, who uh, recently put together a video on COVID video reports on COVID and the experts to remind us again what the outcomes were versus what the pronouncements were. For example, which states performed best during COVID and how much of that was based on policy choices? How much of that was based on to some extent, climate and serendipity. Here's Stossel on the U.S. Stay at home. That is the order tonight. Stay home. When COVID hit, experts were quick to tell us exactly what to do. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Uh. Turns out washing our hands doesn't protect us, but being outdoors does. At the beginning of the pandemic, experts told us stay home. Close schools, don't wear masks, do wear masks, disinfect countertops. How to clean and disinfect your home. Now, three years later, we can say who was right and who was wrong. In Florida, the pandemic is raging. The media got a lot wrong. They repeatedly trashed Florida's governor for lifting lockdowns. Governor DeSantis is just acting irresponsibly. While praising New York's governor. Governor Cuomo is doing an amazing job. I'm wowed by what you did. The governor's brother gushed over New York's lockdowns (laughs) and sneered at Florida's reopening. That's why states like Florida are in such dire straits. But Florida wasn't in dire straits. Florida and New York had about the same number of deaths. And if you take age into account, Florida has more old people. Florida did better than New York. In general, three years later, we see little difference between states that opened up and those that didn't. In fact, the states with the fewest deaths are liberal Vermont and conservative Utah. How about that? Right. I mean, just a reminder that things like population density, use of mass transportation... 
uh, those sorts of things had impact, whereas so much else that we, we you were told to do, like washing your hands, cleaning surfaces, had no impact. Wash your hands and sing happy birthday to me twice. Get in there real good, you know, talking to us like we're all in kindergarten. But the thing is, and I want somebody to bring this up at one of these mayoral forums, Mayor Lightfoot, unlike de Blasio, de Blasio kept 23 beaches open, never shut the pass, never shut Central Park. She shut down the entire lakefront and the bike path, 18 miles long. We could Parks, we couldn't walk outside. I'll never forget this one guy. She put up that snow fencing. You know, it's the brown with metal fencing. And this guy came with pliers. I will never forget it as long as I live. I was, it was near Diversity Harbor, near the golf course there, the driving range. And he went up because they had it where you couldn't walk on the sidewalk. You had to walk in the street. It was also, you know, a danger with cars. He went in there, and he just took it all down and then started kicking it. And then other people started coming out and started helping him. And I, I regret that I did not videotape that. But the anger and his face, that was like his breaking point. Enough is enough. We yeah. need to walk outside. Outside is fine. He's that, a he, yeah, distinct minority. Well, distinct minority in Chicago. I'll, Dr. Awardy said, well, what if you run past somebody on the bike path and they sneeze and, ew, and there's sweat. And she literally had a visceral reaction to sweat as if it's a bad thing. Yeah, so the larger point is outside. Right. And this was all over the world. There was the great video that went viral of a guy walking on a beach in Italy and two cops uh, start to approach him because he's violating the lockdown in Italy. <laughs> well, what about the guy who was surfing can, in California? Can, and they... can, can, can I finish a, a okay. story? I mean, can you just dial it down for a second? Well, I'm, I'm, so, I'm upset about this, and nobody's asking these questions. To her uh, and and then there's and then he, if you remember the video, he sprints, and it becomes like uh, rock. It comes like Sylvester Stallone and Carl Weathers and and Rocky. Uh, the Rocky movie sprinting on the beach and he outruns the police and so on and so forth because the police are in terrible shape um, and, uh, you know, and more susceptible to COVID because of that shape. Uh, but regardless, yeah, so, right, the, the locking down of outdoors, the the locking down of golf courses, the mm-hmm. one person or two people per a four-person boat and so on and so forth, all of these things, they need to be remembered because there's a significant portion of the population that um, not only doesn't remember them for being erroneous, these diktats, but uh, continues to embrace beautiful lies to this very day, as evidenced by what my friends saw in the respective churches here versus Dallas. 312-642-5600, turnkey dot pro answer line, six four six three six. You could type in uh, and leave us a text message on our turnkey.pro text line. Uh, it's important to, to remember right, how things went in the various states versus how they were billed as having gone by the D.C. press corps. Talk about gaslighting. Same thing. Uh, with, so, so New York versus Florida was a big one or any place versus Florida because DeSantis was vilified. Uh, how about Sweden, the Sweden example? Sweden was given the Ron DeSantis treatment by the International Press Corps. Well, how'd Sweden do? Around the world, the experts and the media were just as wrong. Sweden's failed experiment. How their dangerous COVID gamble went wrong. Reporters trashed Sweden. Officials made the decision not to lock down, hoping it would lead to widespread immunity. But cases are surging. 
Cases were surging then, deaths too. But allowing people to develop immunity did pay off. Sweden ultimately did better than its neighbors. In fact, Sweden has had fewer excess deaths than most other countries, says the OECD. Did you hear about that from American media that trashed Sweden? I didn't think so. Mm -hmm. I love him. Ah. And excess deaths is actually a pretty good way to measure it. And um, uh, Stossel gets into that a bit, too. And, And sort of like Utah and Vermont, for reasons that have little to do with politicians and much more to do with things like population density, uh, median age, uh, climate. Uh, and they're in be, shape, though. Surprised to, surprised to learn how well certain countries did when it came to excess death as compared to third world countries, as compared to industrialized countries and how poorly they did. Stossel's riff on excess deaths. Excess deaths, say researchers. Deaths above the pre-COVID average. That's the best way to compare countries' COVID experience. It's because some countries undercount COVID. A huge gap between reported deaths and COVID deaths. India reported fewer than a million deaths, but there were probably many more because there were five million excess deaths in India. Former Soviet countries undercounted too. The dictator of Belarus played hockey and said his country was COVID free. Belarus and other former Soviet states claimed they did well, but excess death data show they did terribly. Maxim Lott maps this data and posts it at the website Maximum Truth. His COVID fudge factor reveals the communist culture of hiding the truth is alive and well. Here's the excess death data for the whole world. The dark-shaded countries like Russia, Bulgaria, and Peru did worst. Countries in gray mean there wasn't enough reliable data. Lighter places like Mongolia and Kenya did very well. I was surprised to see that Kenya and Togo and sub-Saharan Africa did well. Surprised because Africa has low vaccination rates and less high-quality medical care. Lot says it's probably because their population's so young. COVID rarely harms young people. Mm. Another factor uh, not taken into account. And uh, the lockdown, the hardest, strident, most strident lockdown countries, like, say, Australia, how they fare and why? What does the data say about countries like Australia, places that impose brutal lockdowns? For anyone who breaches quarantine, they face fines and even jail. The penalties ranging from as much as $50,000 in WA and 12 months behind bars. Australia's rigid rules did save lives, partly because the island sealed its borders banning almost all travel. For two years, there was little COVID in Australia. But once almost every Australian was vaccinated, the government lifted its lockdown. COVID cases soared. Population adjusted. Australia now has had more COVID cases than the U.S., but far fewer deaths, partly because when Australia stopped its lockdown, Omicron was circulating, and the Omicron strain is less deadly. Were Australia's strict lockdowns worth it? You are bending my arm backwards. The average Australian lived two weeks longer because the country's strict rules limited COVID spread. But would you want to deal with Australia's authoritarian lockdown to live 
two weeks longer? I wouldn't. And it turns out people in China don't want that either. They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests. They want freedom. Protesting is illegal in China, so these people risk their lives. Here, factory workers threw barricades at security guards and white hazmat suits. The workers have been forced to stay inside an iPhone factory for weeks to keep them safe from COVID. After the protests... China did a U-turn and lifted most of its severe COVID rules. What can America learn from all this? What can we learn from all this? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. They're never going to admit that they're wrong, though. You think Governor Pritzker is going to come out and say, yes, you know, if I could do things differently? No. No, I he don't think so. He ripped on Governor Kim Reynolds when she opened up, you know, her state. And he's like, people are dying. And if you go to Iowa, you'll run into two people and one of the two will have COVID. I mean, he got his numbers all wrong. Later apologized for that. But it's just vilifying governors who, who chose to do the right thing. Which is why reports like Stossel's are important and they continue to be, which is why it is important to, to continue the dialogue about what we continue to learn that has applicability retrospectively as well as prospectively so that we can assess the policy choices that were made, the impact of those policy choices, and the propriety of pursuing those policies again if and when the next pandemic arrives. I thought the Australia point that Stasso made, too, is rather interesting. Oh, sure. You know, they save some lives initially. Then everybody gets vaxxed. They lift them and everybody gets covid because, right, every day we're operating under the same assumption that uh, everybody else was operating on per all the experts, at least the covidians were operating under that. If you get the vax, then you won't get covid. And of course, that's by the boards as well. But also, too, because the Omicron variant was less lethal. And what happened with the virus as it mutated, it became less lethal. And so the, you know, the contagiousness and lethality inversely proportional, that's what many who were uh, sidelined by the COVIDian mob were saying right from the outset. And thinking about that, what Australia did to its people, what we did to our people, uh, although there's much less evidence that there was any benefit to the lockdowns in places like Illinois or New York. That's why I can't laugh at the Jimmy Fallon, you know, new variant riff that he had on his show, and people thought that was so funny. Like, screw you. God. But even the benefits that uh, Stossel ascribes to Australia, uh, Australians live about two weeks longer, and all the advantages they have, the ability to lock down an island nation and not allow travel inside or out and so forth. Is it worth it? Because, again, as we tried valiantly over the last three years to remind people, and uh, here, here's another reminder that can't be offered enough. Life is about trade-offs. Trade-offs. When you choose one path, you are foreclosing another path. You have to assess opportunity costs, which is why... We spend so much time talking about relative risk profiles and trying to divide this up a little bit based on what we knew, because a 75 year old doesn't have the same, you know, a 15 year old doesn't have the same risk profile when it comes to COVID as a 75 year old. Right. But that's not the way that the COVIDians talk about this, even to this day, most of them. 
I know, it's so infuriating. Ugh. So Stossel, Stossel uh, attempts to answer his own question of what can we learn from this in the United States? We now know that draconian lockdowns can save lives, but lockdowns hurt people financially. New York lost 400,000 jobs since the start of the pandemic. Florida gained 400,000. Also, kids in lockdown states suffered. Obesity increased in New York by five percentage points. Just because New York kept schools closed? Well, in Florida, where schools reopened sooner, obesity actually fell a little. Kids' education suffered an historic setback. Scores decreased by the largest amount ever recorded. In Sweden, which never closed its primary schools, kids suffered no learning loss. I get that we know more now. Three years ago, terrified politicians just wanted to do something. But next pandemic, I wish they'd be a little humble, except that they don't know everything. All of us have different values about safety versus freedom. Life's better when we individuals get to make our own decisions. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. And, you know, speaking of questions that are now being asked that were verboten when skeptics were asking them during the pursuit of these lockdown policies. I mean, this is remarkable. Dr. Leanna Wen, uh, formerly the head abortionist at Planned Parenthood, op-ed in the Washington Post. I don't know what she's saying now. How to stop overcounting COVID deaths and hospitalizations. She asks the question, uh, per the CDC, the United States has experienced around 400 deaths every day. At that rate, there'd be 150,000 deaths a year. But are these Americans dying from COVID or with COVID? Oh, thank you, Dr. Wen. Thanks. This is supposed to be a novel question. Yeah. Like nobody's okay. considered this before. A little late to the party there. But this is the same doctor who's told people to get their kids vaccinated. Then she goes on the air and says, I'm not going to get my young daughters vaccinated. Right. This is that same person. Okay. Oh. Right. Yeah. So now it's okay to ask questions that were, were you know, they'll, they'll let you know when it's okay to ask these sort of questions to uh, express some skepticism or a desire for more information to see how much you actually know, how much faith I should put in your pronouncements and policy recommendations well, I remember or ta- policy mandates, as the case may be. I remember, sorry for interrupting again, but I remember talking to Dr. ZK saying, hey, listen, can you tell us, please, who's dying with COVID or from COVID? And just trying to get her to, you know, how many people are hospitalized without COVID, but they're there and they were tested. So just to try to change their policy and how they're presenting the facts. And it took a while, but she finally got around to it. Took a year. <laughs> Ellie, it's outside. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, hope you guys are doing well. A um, couple points to my comment. Um, I'm really just tired at this point, just being gaslit for, for years on end. I mean, these statistics are, are made up. They don't make sense, I mean, at best. Um, I mean, if you look at, like, the continent of Africa with very low uh, COVID mortality rates, well, I mean, the vaccination rate was very low there as well. They take uh, hydroxychloroquine every Sunday for malaria reasons. Um, India, Uttar Pradesh, high use of ivermectin. They have a lot of success there. Brazil, yeah, I, I think I think India's success. I think I don't think India has nearly as much success. I think there was a 
significant there there's significant excess deaths in India but but you know, well, if you look at specifically I'm talking about Uttar Pradesh where they did have uh, prophylactic use of ivermectin along with some other drugs they they did show success there when the delta wave was uh, was hidden pretty hard uh-huh. and then for excess mortality I mean it's it's pretty much obvious at this point that these vaccines are killing people. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, we just had, what, two weeks ago now, a player passed almost, have cardiac arrest, almost passed dead on the field. And when you look globally, I mean, I'm a soccer fan. This has happened all over the world. I mean, it, it just continues to happen. Young people are dying left and right. Sean Caston's daughter, there is a basketball well, player. Well, 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 again, we, we don't know. I mean, thanks for the call. Let's Let's try to do something else. Don't overstate the case. There's no reason to. We don't know the cause of Sean Caston's daughter's death. We don't know the cause of Damar Hamlin's uh, cardiac arrest. We, we don't know. We don't know why that Jacksonville Jaguars player, uh, 38 years old, died in his sleep in Indiana. This was like about the same time as Damar Hamlin's event on the field. Uh, so, yeah, I, there are questions to ask. The incidence of myocarditis. Um, the risk of myocarditis. Uh, also other risks. There are questions to ask, but don't draw conclusions that you can't support. Just ask questions. The experts, especially when, you know, you, you, they're not in the, I'm, I'm a layman, I'm not in the medical field. Ask questions. Challenge the experts. That's the point. Don't try to impose something on them that you can't support. There's no reason to overstate the case. Some conservatives have a real tendency to do that. It's unhelpful. It's unhelpful. Why can't I ask questions? That's a very difficult proposition to argue with. I just have some questions. If it's so obvious and if the evidence is so so overwhelming, then just present it to me. I mean, we we mentioned the Harvard study about the the vaxes uh, last week and the possibility of uh, that, that they were concluding that it does present a heightened risk of myocarditis in certain individuals. There was another uh, release from the CDC about the a safety concern. Of, I'll read from the release. Following the availability and use of the updated bivalent COVID-19 vaccines, CDC's vaccine safety data link, a near real-time surveillance system, met the statistical criteria to prompt additional investigation and went to, in, into whether there was a safety concern for ischemic stroke in people ages 65 and older who received the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine uh, bivalent. So they're not saying there is yet, but the uh, data surveillance system they have was you know, flag this as a possibility that requires more investigation, an increased risk of ischemic stroke, blood not flowing to brain tissue in people 65 and older. So this deserves more investigation. Yep. And we need to ask more questions. And if you're 65 and older and you're thinking about it, then you need to talk to your doc about the relative risks of getting the uh, latest variant of COVID versus um, whatever the CDC is flagging here, at least with respect to the Pfizer BioNTech bivalent vaccine. As ask questions, challenge the conventional accepted received wisdom. But just don't don't tell me uh, something is conclusive that is not conclusive. That's what the Covidians are doing. 
Don't be like them. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy on this installment of Campus Beat. A uh, number of topics to cover, but uh, start with the passing of uh, the great historian Paul Johnson, historian and prolific author Paul Johnson. Uh, some um, selected riffs of Paul Johnson's posted over at The Spectator. On political correctness, Paul Johnson writing in 1994 almost three decades ago. Today, the ideological diseases which rot free minds come from the United States, above all from its campuses, its media, and its immensely powerful political pressure groups. America has always been a country where extremism of of all kind flourishes. Political correctness and compulsory moral anarchy are modern manifestations of the same propensity which hanged unfortunate old women at Salem in the 1690s, made the Civil War possible, detonated the Red Scare in 1919, and McCarthyism in the late 40s. America always subdues these extremisms in the end, but the battle is often hard-fought and bloody, isn't it? 1994, he wrote that. You know, this was uh, back when I was on a college campus, and... Again, unbeknownst to so many in this country, there were these fights going on over things like speech codes on campuses. In fact, Donna Shalala, that putty-faced communist molester of dogs, was the university president of Wisconsin imposing such a, free, uh, such a speech code. The censoriousness of the left was in full blossom Actually, before even then, but certainly in the 90s. And a lot of people were of the belief, to the extent they were even aware of it, that this was something that was relegated to college campuses. Oh, you know, those lefties on college campuses, all those flower kids, they've come of age and they're just having their way on the college campus. Isn't it silly, the politics on, on a college campus? Thank God we won't have we don't have to deal with that in the real world. How about now? So uh, if you think about how about now, think about this. Um, what does the trans movement look like, and what is its impact three decades from now if it goes largely unchecked the way what we used to call political correctness on campus? was left unchecked. Now it's, you know, neo-Jacobinism. Political correctness is way too sanitized a description of what the culture is on college campus and not on college campus in America. All institutions dominated by the left, which is most of them, isn't it? What would that look like? Don't pretend this time that you weren't warned, didn't see it coming. How could this have transpired, right? It's just all in the last five years, hardly. 
in the last hundred years, and it's a knocking over one fence at a time. And what do they build when they seize the property? Well, they build places like Penn State. <laughs> Perfect safety school for uh, Francis Parker grads who can't get into uh, Sex Toy University there in Evanston. Uh, safety school of Penn State, of course. What are they doing? Penn State professor Sam Richards challenged straight students in a sociology class to watch gay or lesbian porn to discover a new side to their sexuality. Quoting him, if you're straight, watch gay or lesbian porn and see how quickly you feel aroused and how you can't control that. You realize that, oh, damn, I could be sexualized by people who are like me. We all at some level are non-binary. We all are very much easily bisexual. I might have hit a nerve, he said. Did I hit a nerve? Uh Uh-huh. Did he require it or just suggest it? Well, the fact they even suggested it, he should be fired. But Um, Penn State, of course, when the uh, issue is this sort of propagandizing and uh, smut peddling, uh, then you have universities invoke, (laughs) invoke academic freedom. And promotion of critical thinking and discussion. Yeah, this was that, which is exactly what Penn State did. Uh, Professor Richards purposely teaches in a manner designed to promote discussion across the spectrum of opinions. His class, not mandatory, but it's popular, elected. The students choose to join Dr. Richards. And his course colleagues uh, take time to discuss opinions from many perspectives, from liberal to conservative. That's not true. And delve into topics from different viewpoints. Great conversation, challenge beliefs, encourage students to explore uncomfortable and complex topics. Of course, that's the same thing we heard at Northwestern. When uh, the professor brought out the frack saw and had it demonstrated it to the kiddies uh, for class. So it's a popular elective, sparking conversation, critical thinking. Sure. Now, um, I don't know if you wanted to offer an opinion on border security or something. Then, oh, and it's Katie barred the door. If you wanted to bring, uh, I don't know, uh, Jordan Peterson to campus. Well, then, ho, ho, ho. Let's uh, pump the brakes on that academic freedom business. (laughs) Yeah. How's that? Penn State. What do you think? 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. A more interesting thing is happening in uh, that. I mean, so this is all customary, and it's been... uh, it's been afoot for generations now is my larger point in case that's not obvious. So what's going on now that's different that provides any potential rays of hope? Well, uh, one thing is DeSantis in Florida switching out a bunch of the trustees of the, on the board of the new college in Sarasota, which is, uh, you know, bills itself as a progressive liberal arts college but it's a state school and he's getting a lot of attention because essentially what they're suggesting they're attempting to do by installing new trustees is reshape the university's attitude uh sort of first principles and curriculum to be more consistent with things like meritocracy not die uh programming 
he's a tr- using Hillsdale College, it seems to me, as sort of a model, even though this is a state school, not a religious one. And among the trustees that he's appointed is our friend Chris Rufo from the Manhattan Institute. And, of course, because of Rufo's very public work, investigative work, exposing critical race theory at every level, exposing the sexualization of children in educational settings at every level, uh, this is creating quite a bit of controversy because uh, it's got the attention of the left, particularly with Ron DeSantis being a prospective Republican presidential candidate in 24. And um, it, it's also it's funny, too, because the there's some criticism from the so-called right as well, suggesting that um, Ron, like the, the never Trump, like bulwark types who fancy themselves libertarians, which is so, somewhat accurate because it usually winds up on the left, which is where they're winding up. So uh, for Ron DeSantis to appoint these trustees and to give it with the idea of giving the college in Sarasota a attitude adjustment. He's being compared to Victor Orban. It's like replacing one sort of a liberalism with a, another sort of a liberalism. Ron DeSantis is trying to impose his will. Well, it's funny because uh, the imposition of his will uh, sounds pretty good to me. And this is from, uh, speaking of the bulwark, Kathy Young, who is a libertarian sort, and uh, somewhat more than somewhat critical of Chris Rufo and Ron DeSantis here. Um, the uh, what she rightly provides in terms of the approach that uh, DeSantis is taking um, sounds pretty good to me. Sounds pretty consistent with what universities were originally how they originally cast themselves. Uh, here's what the agenda for transforming the new College of Florida is. Shift the university to a classical liberal arts model as, a prog- as opposed to a progressive liberal arts model, which it is now. Restructure the administration mission statement. Create a new core curriculum and academic master plan. Abolish die and replace it with equality, merit, and colorblindness. Restructure the academic departments to reflect the new pedagogical approach. Hire new faculty with expertise in constitutionalism, free enterprise, civic virtue, family life, religious freedom, and American principles. Establish a graduate school for training teachers in classical education. Yeah. Um, That sounds pretty good to me. And long overdue. So while I um, appreciate what... uh, a bunch of uh, academics and... and, uh, some journalists like Barry Weiss are doing with this University of Austin play down in Austin, Texas, creating something out of a new institution of higher education out of whole cloth. Um, Where you have authority to make appointments that provide policy direction to an institution, um, here's where, uh, here's another instance where the governor matters. And that certainly is the case in Illinois as well with respect to appointments uh, of trustees to public institutions. And Ron DeSantis is seizing the day here. And um, this provides, to me, another model for replication in other states if and when conservative free market types are able to 
secure election victories at the executive level. So I'd say, you know, there's this is let a thousand flowers bloom and there are going to be many approaches and many models, some reinventing the existing, some creating something that doesn't exist. Um, maybe there'll be more of a non bricks and mortar type uh, of uh, more offerings in that vein because of the still the relative cost of these colleges and universities. Maybe there'll be more people that do some sort of hybrid, take an institution the way that Mitch Daniels did at Purdue, and number one, make it more affordable, keep it on mission, like original mission. Uh, so it's just, just interesting to note because if I had a kid that was looking at college right now, as we've talked about many times and we talked about with Peyton and Eli too, I mean, Georgia Tech, and you focus on engineering like Peyton is, mm -hmm. you know, that could keep them on the straight and narrow, but you're still not completely insulated, even at a place like Georgia Tech. And so I, I just think there are not a, a lot of great offerings, particularly for the prices that are being charged. And so it's worth paying attention to those that are trying to sort of replicate the Hillsdale model, even in a secular setting. The small, as we talked about last week, private Catholic institutions, religious institutions, not just Catholic, that are seeing enrollment spikes because there is this hunger for a classical, small-L liberal education that helps to produce the, the well-rounded citizen. Uh, so I like what DeSantis is doing here. I like what I'm hearing from the people involved at the University of Austin. I like what I'm seeing from some of these small private liberal arts colleges that are religiously affiliated. So, you know, there is not a turning of the tide, but there are more outlets, I think, coming online for people that, you know, are not interested in just uh, a degree that confers status, even if it's going to be four years of, you know, propagandizing and, uh, and, and, and censorship and being being encouraged to watch gay porn to get in touch with the other side of your sexuality, according to some sociology professor. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, independent journalist Matt Taibbi, a man generally of the left. Remember, he wrote a book about Trump being a clown. But he's been one of the uh, chief conduits for making Twitter documents public, Elon Musk's Twitter files that he is running through uh, people like Taibbi and Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger to get out into the public domain this public-private censorship combine that exists between big government and big tech. Tyvee was on with uh, Maria Bartiroma yesterday, summarizing uh, his perspective on all of the Twitter documents that have been released to date. I think the major revelation of the Twitter file so far 
is that we've discovered an elaborate uh, bureaucracy of what you might call public-private censorship. Uh, basically, companies like Twitter had a system by which they received tens of thousands of requests for action on various accounts, typically through the DHS and the FBI. But these requests were coming from basically every agency in the government. We've seen them from the HHS, uh, from, the, uh, from the Treasury, from the DOD, uh, even from the CIA. And they will send basically long lists of accounts in Excel spreadsheet files and uh, ask for action on those accounts. And in many cases, uh, Twitter is complying. Yeah, it's funny. As, as I was reading these tens of thousands of emails, we would put them into different buckets. So this might be a First Amendment particular uh, issue over here. Uh, this might be a revolving door question over here. But then over here, we had a bucket called improper asks. And there you might see something like the FBI asking for user identification or IP addresses or handles. And in some cases, even things like geolocation of individual accounts. Now, the problem is we don't see always see the other side uh, of these transactions, but we can definitely see the government asking for these things. Uh, so these are things that are they're not entitled to, uh, usually without a subpoena or without a warrant, but they're asking for them anyway because they have a very close relationship with these companies. Uh, and in some cases, we're not talking about a few accounts. We're talking about thousands of accounts where they're asking for handles or IP addresses or other information. Unbelievable. And that, I think, is very dangerous. For more on this, please be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of Brutal War, Jungle Fighting in Papua New Guinea, 1942. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, in principle, there's nothing wrong with public-private sector cooperation. If you go back to World War II, for example, there were, there were many instances where universities and industry uh, had all kinds of conversations in cooperation with the U.S. government in, in pursuit of winning World War II. But we saw in the 1960s, for example, during the height of the anti-war and civil rights movement, that there were many times where government either actually crossed a line or did activities similar to this, which were conducting all kinds of queries on public safety and, or public interest, and there were no guardrails, there was no ruling, and there was no oversight. And this resulted in something called the Church Committee, yeah. uh, which revealed all kinds of in some cases, crimes, but in a lot of cases, the abuses of government should not be doing these things. Well, there, there's something what we see here is, is 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 actually far greater than anything we saw in the 1970s. So, public-private cooperation is fine as long as there are guard rules and oversight and protection of of civil liberties and constitutional rights. And in this case, not only does it seem that those were not put in place. But they were actually disguised and ignored so people wouldn't know that these activities existed, so people couldn't have a debate about what kind of activities to put in place. So this is, to me, one of the most egregious abuses of civil liberties we have seen really since, since World War I. I agree with that, and, and, and the the difference uh, between this big tech, big government combine and, you know, say, the J. Edgar Hoover 
era at the FBI. Oh, by the way, it's Martin Luther King Day. So all on, on the left who are, are, you know, unquestioningly uh, proponents of the FBI. I mean, maybe you want to remember the performance during the civil rights era. But uh, OK, I, but I digress. The difference here is the government using private companies to do things that they can't do. And that's also a constitutional violation. You're not allowed to uh, you know, uh, do an end run around the First Amendment by listing private parties to put restraints on that you couldn't legitimately put on yourself. Right. If you ask somebody else to rob a bank, you're a bank robber. And the, and the federal government doesn't have the authority to ask somebody to commit a crime. I mean, there are some instances where they can do some forgive crimes and things like that, but the federal government doesn't actually have authority to commit crimes. Therefore, asking other people to commit crimes or constitutional violations on your behalf is, is not legitimate. And even if there was some kind of fine legal line, clearly this is not how people intended or want their government to operate, which is to just ignore oversight and rules and regulations and privacy and everything else by just getting somebody else to do that for them. So this is a this is a really big deal. And what's important about this is it's not a couple of rogue agents. This is a obviously a national policy on behalf of the Biden administration and and when we talk about this, we shouldn't forget it wasn't just limited to federal agencies. It seems like every member of the Democratic leadership uh, in the Congress had equal authority to do this. Right. And you have to remember, this is done where nobody knows this is going on. There is no oversight. There is no disclosure. There is no discussion of this at all. And you can't say, well, it was for national security reasons. Because in many of these things, it's very clear and apparent there is no national security connection. There is no crime. In many of the cases, these requests are, I don't like what this guy is saying. And they're just declaring something misinformation or a problem or a threat. You know, we, you know, I, when we said this on your show before, and now I think it you know, kind of has to be carved in stone maybe at the Martin Luther King Monument, which is you cannot create government that is people-proof. You know, we can put all kinds of requirements. We saw this with FISA. So FISA is, as a matter of fact, we're coming up on a debate on this. FISA is the uh, basically the federal authority to do a secret wiretap or, or, or a secret warrant, right? Because you don't want for, because for national security reasons or public safety or something, you don't want to disclose this because that's a problem. So we have a whole special system in place to go to a judge to essentially get a secret warrant. But the whole idea of the system was to in the process of doing this, still protecting people's constitutional rights and liberties. And we saw all kinds of abuses that occurred under that. And now it's coming up for people who say, well, let's not do this anymore. Well, of course, you have to do it because you need, you need these authorities because there are legitimate requirements for them. But you also have to have a process in place to protect people's liberties. When you elect people and you put them in government and you allow them to work in federal service forever – and they don't believe in these processes and liberties, you're going to get violations like this. We've seen uh, it again and again and again throughout our history. Speaking of national security, oversight and transparency, the uh, Biden class, the classified documents in Biden's possession, they keep turning up a cookie jar, the cupboard. They're all over the place, apparently at his home. Um, and uh, uh, it's it seems to me we're despite what the uh, the best efforts of Democrats on the Sunday talk shows. 
we're at the middle of this story. We're starting in the middle of the story. Right. We don't know why the attorneys did a search for classified documents in the first place, and we don't know uh, how they're inadvertently placed everywhere and by whom. And actually, even before that, we don't know why these documents were selected for removal to Biden's private residence and then to his phony think tank um, or who selected them. We we don't know any of this. All we have is a few statements from his legal representatives about how uh, they did the right thing and turned documents they discovered over to the National Archives and are cooperating with the Department of Justice. And this is an example of the Biden administration doing the right thing. Yeah, I, I was two problems with with this story. One is when this when these um, disclosures actually take place. This is another example of where, including with a whole bunch of people, they pushed off bad news until after the election. Right. Yep. Just like Hunter's laptop, where they actually colluded to deprive the American public of information that that maybe would be relevant to their choice until after the election. It's a really partisan political <clears throat> act. And if there's a crime involved, you could argue it's, it's obstruction of justice. That's a problem. The second problem is <clears throat> their explanation is a big problem right off the point. As somebody who was in the military for 25 years, had a clearance my entire time, had clearances after that, dealt with classified information my whole life, which is why I got out of that business. I didn't want a clearance. I didn't want anything to do with the stuff is. And they said, well, this is inadvertent. Well, when you're given the responsibility for the custody of classified documents, it doesn't matter how they get misused. It doesn't matter if you leave them in Starbucks by accident or if you pass them off to a Soviet agent. Inadvertent handling of classified documents is mishandling of classified documents. So what they essentially they've got done is come out and committed. They, they did something that was grievously wrong. They mishandled classified documents. And for the press and everybody just jump off and say, well, it's not like Trump it was inadvertent. Well, first of all, it's wrong. And, and again, exactly like the Hunter Biden story, as you pointed out, we're in the middle of the story. They come out and they declare this guy innocent, and they don't even have all the facts before them. Whereas with Trump, it was he's guilty, and then we'll, we'll go find facts to prove that. So we have, excuse me, we have reached such a level of partisanship in, in the reporting and in the act of public act of governance that, that this is this is really beyond the pale. Yeah, but I mean, why is it that Biden's personal attorneys, who have no security clearance at all, they're allowed to search for more documents instead of the FBI. So right there, there's different treatment between Trump and President Biden. Uh, it does seem incredibly inappropriate that you would have somebody without a clearance reviewing documents to see if they're classified or not. And and for lawyers to do that seems, right. again, wildly inappropriate. Now, to ask a government agency, the FBI, or to come in and do that in the presence of the lawyer, with the lawyer, that's perfectly appropriate. <laughs> to basically say, well, we'll look at our stuff and then we'll tell you if we find anything. <laughs> and why, aren't, why isn't like people with a clearance, like the White House counsel or something doing this? I, I don't know. Uh, as you point out, it just raises way more questions than it answers. But don't you think President Obama is involved in this? I mean, he's vice president. He can't declassify anything. Who gave him those documents? Um, again, as you pointed out, we're in the middle of a story, so... There's so many questions that are unanswered here, but what's very, very clear is, not to sound like a broken record here, but one, information was denied the American public when it was most relevant. Yep. And, and two is 
you know, we're not, we don't have a full and clear accountability, and yet we have this mad rush to say nothing to see here, move on. Now, look, I've heard people say that, you know, this is actually a, a Democratic plot to take Biden down. It is ironic. Not that they're connected, because I don't know if they are. But literally a week ago, Biden was at the height of his power. I mean, you know, we were all calling him Chauncey Gardner and everything else. But then he could turn to his base and say, look, I delivered on every single major legislative promise I promised you. I've done amazing things. I'm going to ban gas stoves. And, you know, we didn't get hammered in the election as badly as people thought. And Biden was so emboldened and so empowered by the ceiling of really invincibility that he even had the courage to go to the border, which is something he wouldn't do for two years because he was just afraid to get hammered. But he, but he thought, I can even go to the border and talk nonsense at the border now. I'm invulnerable. And yet, literally a week after this, his presidency is is uh, is um, is, in, is threatened. So it, it is ironic, but I, I don't know. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Have some chicken noodle soup, Jim. Oh, uh, yeah, apparently. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, the Democrat Socialists, want you to know they are men and women of unyielding principle. That was the spin on the Sunday talk shows over the weekend, of course. Uh, as it pertains to classified documents in Biden's possession versus classified documents in Trump's possession. A good example of this, trying to make the distinction between the two in the interest of damage control for Mr. 10 percent, the big guy, the current White House occupant. Dan Goldman is a Democrat socialist from New York. He was on Meet the Press and uh, made sure to understand, made sure to convey so that we understand he has a paradigm that he applies to both situations, and he has done so. And Joe Biden is exonerated and President Trump is guilty. You had an op-ed last year um, about the 45th president and the issues with classified material, and you laid out four factors you said prosecutors need to look at. Intent to distribute, clear knowledge of importance, volume of the material, and whether or not investigators had been lied to. Is that the set of criteria you also think President Biden needs to be judged on? It absolutely is. And I think if you go through those criteria in each one, they do not apply. We don't have any indication that President Biden knew about them. He certainly has demonstrated no intent to deceive or obstruct the, the government by keeping them. And that's in direct contrast to President Trump, who refused to cooperate, who refused to comply with a subpoena, and who ultimately forced the Department of Justice to execute a search warrant to retrieve the classified documents. When you look at this very clearly and you compare them, there is no comparison. Those four factors, I believe, apply to President Trump, and none of them apply to President Biden. And that is where we need to be uh, centering this conversation. Exactly. Uh, stop paying attention to what's going on in Biden world and the documents that keep popping up at his house. Just focus on prosecuting Trump, because that's all that's appropriate here, based on that uh, very 
thorough legal analysis you heard from the good representative. For more on this, please be joined by Andy McCarthy. He's a former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller, The Ball, uh, bestseller, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Morning. How are you? Good. Um, so uh, you heard that um, that in-depth review from Representative Goldman, and it's quite clear that uh, Biden did nothing wrong and Trump did. And let's focus on Trump. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear Goldman, you know, turn uh, as political as he has. But I think he was wasn't he ship's uh, counsel on the impeachment. So I guess sure. it's not a surprise. Well, he's, yeah, exactly. He's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a New York Democrat, so even if he thinks differently, I don't think he'd, he'd be able to say any differently. So now, you know, look, I, I think um, the problem here, everybody is comparing Trump and Biden when, you know, the context here is Hillary Clinton. And my uh, lawyer's uh, Southern District of New York analysis of all this for what it's worth has been that um, after Clinton got a pass, if you were trying to build a case on Trump on the theory that he was so uniquely awful compared to Clinton that he should be prosecuted, even though she had a four-year willful violation where the whole objective was to defeat the government laws about uh, about record-keeping, uh, and then she misled investigators, The uh, her, her legal team colluded with the Justice Department to limit what the FBI could investigate. Uh, and she destroyed tens of thousands of government records when she knew they were relevant to investigations, including the Benghazi investigation. I think if you were going to prosecute Trump after all of that, you really had uh, it was uphill for the Justice Department. They couldn't afford for anything to go wrong. So, you know, then coming out of left field, as it turns out, the president of the United States, the sitting one, uh, is essentially guilty of the same offense that Trump is under investigation for, I just don't see how you can bring the case. You can you can quibble about, we don't know a lot about what about Biden's offense, including how those documents got there and how many times they were moved. There's a lot of unanswered questions about all that. But right. even if, if uh, Goldman was right, uh, and you know Trump was by degree worse, the fact is it's the same offense, and you can't rationalize charging Trump after you didn't charge Hillary. Right. I, what was the point of the raid on Mar-a-Lago in the first place, knowing you had the, as you point out, the Hillary Clinton president destroying evidence, for goodness sakes, and uh, to which is, you know, by definition, obstructing justice. And if you didn't believe that you could I mean, if you if, if that precedent is controlling effectively, then why put yourself in this position in the first place? Yeah, well, I, I guess where I part company with you on that is my my beef with Hillary Clinton is that she should have been charged. Yeah, and I don't believe that, and I don't believe that because she wasn't charged, we therefore never again can charge anyone else. That doesn't that you know, I mean, otherwise, why enforce the laws at all? But, so but I think you... what you have to say is a profound mistake was made in not charging Clinton. But the reason Trump got a search warrant was because they tried for a year and a half to plead with him to turn the documents over, and then he flouted a grand jury subpoena, which you or I, if we provided false statements to a grand jury, we'd be prosecuted. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for Trump in that regard. 
But aren't you suggesting that uh, nobody's going to get prosecuted because of this Biden development? I, I, I think it's because of the Biden development on top of the context that's set by Clinton. You know, well, I'd be, I think I could I, I think I could find uh, I, I might not be crazy about it because I think there's a lot of downsides to prosecuting Trump, not least. You know, the fact that uh, people in this country are on fire over the, the two-tiered justice system. Right. But if you could make an argument that, you know, Trump committed something that anybody else would be prosecuted for, namely providing false evidence to a grand jury, uh, you know, I could at least indulge that. The problem is the underlying offense is a classified information offense, and they're clearly not going to prosecute Biden on that. So I don't see how you prosecute Trump. Well, right. But then my, my point is to say that then you're essentially concluding that Merrick Garland is making decisions based not on the rule of law, but based on politics. Yeah. But if you would ask me that at the beginning, I would have said that as well. I mean, well, you know, yeah, look, okay, fair enough. Garland Garland appointed a special counsel for Trump uh, on was it the the 18th of November, two weeks after he found out what happened with Biden. And he should already have appointed a special counsel for Biden two years ago in connection with what they like to call the Hunter investigation. But what is actually in terms of its relevance to the country, it's about, you know, what did the Chinese think they were buying when they gave millions and millions of dollars to Joe Biden and his family? Um, That that should have had a special counsel two years ago. But when when he left office, Biden was vice president, which he can't declassify any you know, documents. But how did he get those documents in the first place? Did Obama give them to him? That's what I don't understand. Well, he didn't need Obama. uh, You know, when he was vice president, he had access to classified information. And when he left the White House, he continued to have a security clearance. So, you know, I don't think his access to classified information is any is troubling any more than if Trump simply had access to classified information and he was following the rules for, you know, reviewing it and handling it, there would be no problem, right? So the issue is, how did the documents get? And I don't think they got to his to his um, uh, Penn Biden office in Washington first. I think they must have gone uh, to the office he had set up at the University of Pennsylvania first. And the other thing is, if he's, we already know he's got documents in at least two different locations in private homes right so um what I, what i also don't understand is once you find out that that's a problem why are we relying on his aides who don't have a security clearance right uh, to go through his stuff uh if he's fully cooperating with the fbi then why isn't the fbi at these locations looking for the stuff so something else too you you raised the point about um when merrick Garland knew about the classified documents being in his possession which was pre-election because of the disclosure right. and the uh, ostensible turning over of these documents to the National Archives. So uh, did Merrick Garland have a duty to disclose? Uh, we were so focused on Biden's duty to disclose the lack of transparency there or to the extent any members of the press knew. What about Merrick Garland? You know, Dan, I would ordinarily I would have said no, because the Justice Department, generally speaking, doesn't talk about ongoing investigations, except in connection with the Trump search, he came out and gave a press conference. So, you know, again, what I think you're underscoring is that the way these cases have been handled uh, have has been 
you know, two different qualities of justice. And, you know, the, the people who always come out on the short end are the Republicans. Yeah, and and um, I, there's there was great effort made, uh, including by Jamie Raskin and others, over the weekend to distinguish the Biden versus Trump case, as you heard from Goldman, uh, the invocation of January sixth, and you know anything to misdirect away. But uh, it seems to me that um, uh, the best thing that could happen to to Trump is for Merrick Garland to indict Trump and not prosecute Joe Biden. I mean, I'm talking about politically. Here, politically, right? politically, because then he gets to run against the Department of Justice. He doesn't have to run against DeSantis or to some extent, even whoever the nominee for the Democrats are. You're going to have this be a referendum on, a, on the Department of Justice and this two tier system of justice you're describing. And that is like popu populism center cut for Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the only thing that cuts against that is I thought all along the Democrats want to run against Trump because they're confident that they can beat him in a general election and they think he can win the nomination. Right. The, the question you have to ask if you're the Democrats is, do you want Trump running in that context where, you know, the issue isn't necessarily then Trump, although he'll be, you know, he, he obviously galvanizes the turnout on the, on the Democrat side, but the issue will be the two tier justice system, which I think has people on fire in this country. I, Personally, I don't think Trump could win uh, a national election again, but I wouldn't want to roll the dice on it. Well, mm -hmm. do you think these documents are going to ruin Biden's reelection bid? Well, I, you know, I think Biden's reelection bid ought to, ought to go by the wayside of its own weight, right? I mean, he, aside from the fact that he's not a good president, and you know, he's kind of a, I, I think the, Amy, the. The documents to me are like the classified information iteration of the Biden we've seen for 50 years. He's just a screw up. Um, and he'll be a he'll be like an 82 year old screw up um, in the next term. So I, I just I can't believe that we're in a situation where he's apt to be the nominee under the circumstances. And it could well be that we're hearing a lot of this stuff because they're, you know, the, the project to push him out of the way uh, is already underway. But. You know, I don't know. Uh, speaking of, um, of the Biden Inc. portion of the program here, you mentioned the special counsel that should have been appointed long ago. Uh, there was an exchange between Ron Johnson and Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. Mm -hmm. Chuck Todd is trying to distinguish uh, the Department of Justice investigation from congressional inquiries, suggesting that uh, Johnson and Grassley in the Senate or uh, Jim uh, Comer in the House that these investigations of Hunter Biden and Biden, the Biden family, although he leaves it to Hunter purposefully, uh, they're they're illegitimate. They're just pol uh, political uh, because the, the Department of Justice is investigating. They will determine if there were any crimes committed. And as uh, Chuck Todd, I think, soon to be famously said, there's no crime in making money off your family name. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think any fair-minded person who compared getting millions and millions of dollars from the Chinese to the uh, Ukraine issue that they investigated Trump over would have to conclude that the national security problem, uh, which the most profound problem the framers were worried about when they put the impeachment clause in the Constitution, 
was the possibility that a president who would wield all the awesome power that they that they crafted for the executive branch could be purchased by a foreign government uh, and do the bidding of that government to the detriment of the American people. So that's it's got nothing to do with whether a crime was committed. The question is, what did the Chinese think they were buying when they paid all that money to Biden? And that would be if, if Biden was not the person in the crosshairs here, if it was any other Republican, including Trump, it would be the only story that Chuck Todd was talking about uh, until articles of impeachment were filed. So I don't really I can't really take him too seriously. The issue is the importance of that issue is not whether there's grounds for criminal prosecution or not. It's a it's a national security issue of what does a hostile anti-American communist regime think it bought when it paid millions of dollars to the to the Biden family? And that's a to- it's not only a totally legitimate question. Anyone who tried to get a security clearance in an ordinary government position that required one with that in his or her background would never, ever get a security clearance. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of Manha- uh, Southern District of New York in Manhattan, contributing editor, National Review, author of the bestseller *Ball of Collusion: The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency*. Andy, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Thanks you too. And he joined us on our Turnkey Pro Answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy on this uh, Martin Luther King Day, uh, much of King's reviews of America remain as relevant today and in many different ways than they were when he offered them in the height during the height of the civil rights movement. Um, something that he said in his last public address at Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, his I've been to the mountaintop address. Uh, particularly salient in my view. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. Hmm. Yeah, uh, and so uh, the freedoms that are enshrined in the founding documents but are hard won and preserved in practice, well, those battles continue today. Um, 
I would argue, much less across racial lines than ideological ones. And uh, you have the left, as I we mentioned earlier in the program, the irony of the left, full-throated embrace of the FBI and all that it does. The same FBI that they would rightly have protested in the 60s when they were improperly surveilling Martin Luther King and infringing upon the rights of civil rights leaders. <laughs> same same excesses that you know, gave rise to the church committee, which we discussed as well. But uh, as long as the target is appropriate politically, then the ends justify the means. That seems to be the order of the day. And now, in addition to the racial prism, you have the gender identity prism that has taken hold. And that's the uh, standard of analysis that needs to be applied in determining who is oppressed and who is oppressor. And so you have moments like this one, 17-year-old Rebecca Phillips. She uh, went to the YMCA in Santee, California, I guess where she lives and works. And she uh, relayed what happened to the village board there, the Santee City Council, wanting them to do something about uh, YMCA policy. Well, that's not going to happen, and you'll understand why when you hear what happened to her. Good evening, council members and residents of Santee behind me. <laughs> My name is Rebecca Phillips, and I'm 17 years old. I am not a resident of Santee, but I am employed at a local restaurant, the Omelet Factory, and I work out regularly at the Santee YMCA. Just two weeks ago, after finishing my shift at my job, I went to the gym to swim laps. As I was showering after my workout, I saw a naked male in the women's locker room. I immediately went back into the shower, terrified, and hid behind their flimsy excuse for a curtain until he was gone. I ran into a bathroom stall to change as quickly as I could, organizing my thoughts to share with the people at the front desk. As I did so, I could only think of my five-year-old sister, who I bring to this gym during the summer to, sorry, to enjoy their water slides. This is the YMCA, where hundreds of children spend their summer afternoons in childcare camps. This is the YMCA where my little sister took gymnastics lessons. The locker room was supposed to be her safe haven to gossip with her friends and shower and change. When I asked the YMCA management what their policy was regarding transgenders, they confirmed that the man that I saw was indeed allowed to shower wherever he pleased. As long as you are not a red flag on Megan's Law, the California Sex Offender Registry, a grown male can shower alongside a teenage girl at your YMCA location here in Santee. I was made to feel as though I had done something wrong when I talked to people at the YMCA. Somehow, the indecent exposure of a male to a female minor was an inconvenience to them. When my dad spoke to the sheriff's office, they told him that he should never allow me to shower there ever again. The YMCA wouldn't let my father speak to the manager of the Santee branch. After waiting several days, he finally received a call from Terry Moss, who is the director of membership for San Diego County. She informed my dad that I was not in any danger at the time of the incident, that I was safe. But I ask you this, 
I'm assuming all of you either have a wife, a sister, daughters, or granddaughters, or are a woman yourself. Could you knowingly send an underage girl into a room where there was a naked male and say that she was not in danger, that she was safe, or more importantly, that this was right? Hmm. Yeah, the Young Men's Christian Association, or the YWCA Young Women's Christian mm-hmm. Association. Right, right. We have this too, uh, the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, the Have you seen the new owner of the Miss Universe pageant? Yeah, I, I did. Jack-a-fong, Jack-a-jew-a-tip or something like that? Yes, and I, he was I'm, so excited to let everybody know that Miss Universe pageant is owned by women now, is it? Yeah, women like this dude. The Miss Universe organization from now on is going to be ran by women, owned by trans women, for all women. For all women really around the world, to celebrate the power of feminism. Yeah. Celebrate the power of feminism. Some um, second and third wave feminists may have an issue with that, but hey, uh, I understand those are just TERFs, the trans-exclusionary types. Uh, just like the awfuls that are the great vanguard, the affluent white uh, female leftists, the vanguard of, uh, of uplifting black and other minority families, too. Golly, gee, the identitarian politics. If I was uh, one of these supposed beneficiaries of um, identity politics, I, I don't know. I, I'd ask some of these uh, self-appointed spokespeople to sit down, but that's me. You know, I'm a little persnickety that way. Uh, for more on all things identity politics related, across race and across gender in particular, pleased to be joined by our friend Will Riley again. Will is a poli-sci professor at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always uh, glad to be back on the show. Happy to have you. Uh, We don't have any update on the uh, noose uh, that was found at the Obama library site. It's still a $100,000 reward on that, so I'm sure Chicago police will apprise Uh, us if if there are any developments. Um, but um, just, just beginning with race, since it is Martin Luther King Day and uh, reflecting on that, um, and, and since you wrote a book about the left selling a fake race war, uh, what, how would you describe black-white race relations in this country in 2023? Well, I, I think there are two levels there. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, I wrote the book Hate Crime Hoax, and I, I think that that's probably what's going to turn out to be the case with the uh, the Obama Center news, the legendary news. Uh, since we last talked, the uh, bomb threats made to historically black colleges, which were attributed to white supremacists, this kind of thing, turned out to be the work of kind of one stoner kid in his parents' basement. They've been tracked down to one minor suspect, according to my contact at the FBI. And nobody knows what race he is. Um, the, the agents that are working that case won't release the data, whatever that might mean. So, mm-hmm. I mean, very, very often we, we don't have the Klan in downtown Chicago actually hanging gi ropes from presidential museums. And, and in fact, you might just suspect people use rope on construction sites. Um, 
Yeah. But in terms of race it's relations, it's close to MAGA America, country, though. Yeah, that down, that down, yeah. that library is close to MAGA country in Streeterville. So, yeah. Yeah, and I used to actually live around there in, in MAGA country, Chicago's young professional neighborhood. That's a real, real yeah. Trump land over there. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, All those MAGA hats. I mean, it's hard to keep track of it. Yeah, yeah. Hot yeah, it's been probably a thirty percent minority, ten percent gay over there, and uh, the young. But at, at any rate, so, but. Uh, race relations in America, I, I think there really are two elements here. First of all, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, and I always say if you go to the basketball court, the golf course, the barbershop, race relations are absolutely normal. Um, I went to a U.K. basketball game down here uh, near Louisville, Lexington recently. I mean, tens of thousands of people of every ethnic background just sort of hanging out. Uh, you might see a high school fight between white and black kids, but there's, there really are very few tensions on a day-to-day basis. And we've moved beyond white and black today. I mean, the country is 7% Asian, 17% Caucasian, Hispanic, this kind of thing. So I think there's that in reality. You see that in the Army as well. You see that in varsity athletics. And then I think that there's the presentation of race relations that you get from the media, mm-hmm. which is constant tension and violence, the groups at one another's throats. Um, I mean – Going back to Marshall McLuhan, media realized long ago that there's certain things that sell. I mean, sex, bright pictures of food, war. But one of them is ethnic conflict. And I, I think, unfortunately, that old marketing lesson has been you know, reinforced through generations of the cable news business. So if a black man and a white woman get into a shoving match in a dog park, that, that's almost guaranteed to become regional if not national news. So there's this very false picture of what race relations look like, and that's a real problem. Well, I don't know. Did you ever cover this? Remember the North Carolina power outage? And they blamed it originally or were looking into it due to drag queen show protesters? Never had a follow-up on that one either. And I tweeted that out, NBC News, saying you know they think that it's one of these people who protested this drag queen show downtown in some small town in North Carolina. Yeah, this is actually the the sort of I mean, and again, this is this is what inspired the book. I noticed that a whole bunch of these claims, whether you're talking about, you know, Yasmin Saweed, the torn hijab on the six over there in New York, Jussie Smollett, right, right back home in Chicago, Covington Catholic, where I live now. uh, Most of these claims just turned out not to be real. And yeah, in the in the drag queen context, there's been this whole, quote unquote, groomer debate about what's appropriate to expose kids to. And so you've been seeing these fist fights, frankly, these confrontations between black block Antifa fighters and, you know, sort of tough parent types at what are called family-friendly drag shows. And this itself is kind of a ridiculous sideshow, in my opinion. Don't bring your six-year-old to a drag show. But someone claimed that this had gone much further. One of the groups, I assume they probably blame the conservatives, had shot up a power station. And this was what was responsible for a major power outage. And, yeah, you're right. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. That was apparently just a claim that was made in the media, maybe to the police. There was no connection at all between an attack on a power station and drag. So th- this is this is pretty frequent, actually. And it's, it's, again, one of these sort of weird phenomena where we think there's constant negative conflict and violence in the country. But a great deal of that is the result of media over-focused and not a little bit of of it is the result of actual hoaxing. Well, and and uh, you know, political activists that are trying to move the flag, and so, you know, this is the whole solidarity and marginality play that the left makes, and the new mascot are the trans individuals, 
And so you have the endless stream of uh, allegedly uh, depressing stats about uh, the incidence of trans people being uh, victims of violence, which are were cooked up numbers and so on and so forth. And this sort of has replaced uh, race uh, as the um, as the cause celeb for, you know, uh, white leftist women in the suburbs. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that first of all, one point there that is fairly deep is if you look at financial donations, who often controls the pocketbook in the home, and if you certainly look at the people most likely to endorse specific things, like the use of the term Latinx or Latin for you know, Spanish guy, Latino, whatever else you might have said before, that's very much driven by this specific group, which is white, upper middle to low upper class, college-educated, left-leaning women. So, yeah, that that is very much the case. And the idea that there's sort of, what you say, solidarity and marginalization or something, I mean, that, yeah. that, that also is a character. Now, to some extent, we, we have this on the right as well. There's really not much that, you know, Don Jr., who looks like a fun guy to have a couple whiskeys with, and you know, like the Reverend Falwell have in common. But on the left, this is even more extreme in that the idea is what you have is a coalition of all the groups in the country that currently feel somewhat oppressed against the man or the system or whatever. And without that understanding, which not many people have outside of the media or political science, there's not really much that holds together, say, the trans movement and the Christian black community or something like that. Right. No, but 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 right. But the solidarity and marginality, this is purposeful. And and because the man, which is the left, who controls all these institutions, is constantly telling uh, people how oppressed they are because they understand that's part of a uh, the, the rich tapestry of their governing coalition if they're going to have one. Well, yeah, the, the idea is that there are these endless forms of oppression. So there what would it be transphobia, but then there's racism, there's sexism, there's cis-sexism, heterosexism, post-colonialism. So the idea is that perhaps one by one, these groups would be minorities, but combined, these groups make up, it would actually be something like 270% of society, but these groups make up a winning coalition. And again, the problem, if, if I were thinking as a GOP strategist, the problem is that these groups have absolutely nothing in common. I mean, there's nothing that unifies trans women who are men who believe that they are women, and traditional, without any insults, the definition, and yeah. traditional third-wave feminists who are strong women who want to compete with men in the business world. I mean, there, there's nothing really there that, that is a unifier, and that, that's why it seems to someone of our generation who's maybe been in a dating relationship with a traditional feminist, it seems so bizarre to see someone who is male and was a successful male businessman before admitting that they have a taste called autogynophilia standing up and saying, well, I am the first female hit of the Miss Universe pageant. I mean, the reaction is sort of, well, are you now? But at any rate, the the idea is bringing all these groups together and bringing them together against basically us, or, or maybe just you, but the, the people in suits that are seen as running society. Barack Obama once referred to this as the coalition of the fringes. Right. Yeah. Seen as uh, running society. So I guess I mean, this is the this is the great um, the great trick they pull off is that they 
they get those that they're uh, describing as oppressors to fold in with them so that they can be absolved of their sins of oppression. And this is this is, you know, how you become what's the word allied with these marginalized populations. Now you're a good person again. Yeah, and the thing the thing that's important for people to realize, especially those people in your audience that might be more inclined to the milk of human kindness than I am myself, is that this is all politically strategic. I mean, you know, right now the average income for black Americans has come within 10 or 15% of that for whites before you adjust for age. Asians make 17% more than whites. There actually isn't a great deal of oppression in the United States. So in 2023, it's not like the, the Coalition of the Fringes is actually fighting a China against a China style genocide or something like that. This is this is just a political tactic. But yeah, the goal is to bring as many of these groups together as possible into a winning electoral coalition by presenting themselves as, you know, resistance fighters. The other thing about this, which you touched on earlier, which is kind of funny, is that this group, that kind of you know, mainstream American left to the center left, actually controls most of the institution. I mean, you know, right now they've got the president. Um, they, us- they usually have the, the House of Representatives. But more than that, I mean, that's the group that entirely dominates, you know, academia, mass media. I mean, we're all in, in those arenas fighting right now. I mean, you know, secondary education. So it, it's really a, an interesting and almost cool trick from the opponent's side to be able to control the printing presses that put out the book that says you're a victim. Yeah, Andrew Sullivan said a couple of years ago, we're all on a college campus now. To me, we're all in Leonard Bernstein's uh, Manhattan penthouse. We're all radical chic now. That 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 we're, you know, with the with Leonard Bernstein and the Black Panthers. Uh, Will Will Riley, associate professor of policy, Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax: How the Left Is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey dot pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Woo! That real estate market in Chicago is hot. Oh, yeah. Hot! Woo! Sizzling. Sizzling. Yes. Oh. Do not touch. <laughs> that is a hot market. Uh, uh, give you an example. Uh, billionaire Ken Griffin, who absconded to Miami, Friday sold a 8,000-square-foot condo oh my gosh, on the 66th floor of the Park Tower building. For eleven point two million bucks, that's easily the highest Chicago area home sale price in uh, twenty twenty three so far. Eleven point two million for this uh, eight thousand square foot uh, condo he had, sixty sixth floor Park Tower building. Eleven point two. I mean, things are moving. <laughs> oh, um, there is one, uh, what? W- one caveat. How one... much did he buy it for? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that footnote. Yeah. He bought it for fifteen million in twenty twelve. Oh. <laughs> So, uh, so twenty five percent less than he paid for the unit a decade ago. That sounds about right, actually. And he's got some other properties to unload. And if they think a multi billionaire is going to be spared the 
realities of math in Chicago. Uh, he knows it, and anybody who's paying attention knows it. He's not going to be, and he knows it. He's just uh, divesting and uh, bully for him. Yeah. Uh, uh, in October, he sold his five-bedroom, 7,400-square-foot condo on the 37th floor of the Waldorf Astoria for uh, $10.2 million, Okay. which was... Uh, one point two seven below his asking price, and three million less than he paid for it again almost a decade ago in hmm. twenty fourteen. I wonder why he moved out. Yeah, losing um well, a twenty can. losing twenty five percent, not inflation adjusted. Oh. So call it thirty five percent over a decade of holding property in Chicago. Now I know this is this is high end, and so this is a very rarify universe that it can even play here but the story is the same because the math is similar as you move down uh market anyway i just i thought that was fun because i just i just love the the realtors propaganda and the politicians propaganda about uh, uh prices oh moving up and so on and so forth oh suburbs are hot oh yeah okay i'll tell you what you uh you go long chicago real estate and talk to me in five years and let me know how it's going for more on this and other matters, pleased to be joined by Fox Business Analyst and proprietor of Brands and Palatine. He is Jim Urio. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, are you uh, uh, taking your money out of the market and going long Chicago real estate? You picking up any of Ken, Groffin, <laughs> Ken Griffin's properties by chance? No, I haven't yet. I'm accidentally long Chicago real estate yeah, over the right. last <laughs> 10 years, and I don't really love the position particularly. But to your point before about you said the word math, of course it's a math equation. When, when, uh, when uh, whatchamacallit, uh, mortgage rates go from 2.8 to 7, to, you know, it's just the amount people can afford goes down. Now you throw in the cross currents of Chicago. And I don't know how you get into the loop. Oh, you live in the loop. But I take the blue line couple times a week from Cumberland mm. and somebody to likes say, to gamble this life yeah. I do too <laughs> it's, it, yeah. it's unbelievable like there's no possible way that public transportation in this city could be in the condition it's in without some sort of intent nobody is that incompetent so the city of Chicago is obviously losing people to the suburbs the state is losing people to Florida um, I assume you're coming to me from Florida right now Dan is that correct yeah it's a fair assumption <laughs> That's a fair assumption. So what I mean, everything bad that could happen in Chicago. And again, I, I've been writing about this. If you want real estate values to maintain and you want to attract business to the city of Chicago, you must immediately, with 100% of your resources, address the crime problem. For crime to have spiraled like it has, again, like the blue line smacks of intent to me, and I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? Well, here's the thing, Jim. Let me give you the three-pronged answer that is the answer to every question you have about Illinois or any complaint you have in particular. All right, here it, is. Here it goes. It's not as bad as you think. Right. There's a lot of blame to go around, and they're working on it. <laughs> oh, that's right. All right? So well, the funny thing about this is that I got tons of blame to go around. Personally, I can start pointing fingers at a lot of public officials and wonder what the hell they're actually doing. But whatever. Oh, no, what they're doing. I don't know if you know Governor Pritzker. He's in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum, touting and per- ready for this, promoting and touting Illinois' accomplishments on the world stage. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what in God's name could he be talking he's a, about? He's a great ambassador. He's a great ambassador for the state. Things are going well. 
Yeah. But the thing is that, like, we can we can talk about this and laugh about this, but there I, obviously from the election, there's a lot of people who believe this nonsense. And what, what, what every day it seems like a fight, just trying to slap people and say, "Do you understand what's really happening?" And Davos, what in the world could Davos possibly do to make the life better of an average American? It's a, it's it's absurd. They've never done anything, and all it is is every one of these news stations cover it this big conference because they cover it because they want influence and they want access to these billionaires we as normal people it could sh- probably the only reason we should watch uh, world economic forum is you know like a george carlin thing when there's when the word bipartisan comes up there's an unusually large deception going on and we're wondering how we are going to get the short end of the stick as normal this whole thing it, it, again i've had a lot of coffee this morning as you can probably tell but i'm ready to bounce through the ceiling i think all right, let me uh, have you weigh in on this uh, debate that's raging between BlackRock and Goldman Sachs. Talk about uh, no white hats in this uh, standoff. Uh, this is with respect to the uh, the classic model of uh, managing your portfolio, 60% stocks and 40% bonds. The only problem is uh, that distribution had its worst calendar year since the Great Depression. Uh, BlackRock says uh, it's an outdated model. Goldman Sachs says it isn't. Meanwhile, they're both laying off thousands of people, so what do they know? Anyway, uh, what do you think in terms of actually people rebalancing their portfolio, thinking about this year and and in the near term? Um, Is 60-40 still a handle, or should people be thinking differently? Well, here, here's my two-pronged answer. If you rewind the clock a year ago and BlackRock came out telling everyone that the 60-40 portfolio was bad, then I'd say, wow, you guys, are, you guys are pretty good. The fact they're coming out with that right now. Okay, so the 60-40 portfolio has worked historically except with a caveat. If stocks are going down because uh, bonds are specifically going down, like the government is forcing bonds lower to raise interest rates to fight this massive inflation. Well, it's, it's not – it's not like the normal situation where those rotations, people rotate stocks to bonds, bonds to stocks. No, bonds are being pushed lower, making the actual value of stocks go down. Now, to answer the question right now, I side more with Goldman. I think that 2022 was an interesting anomaly. I think going forward, a 60 portfolio, uh, 60-40 portfolio is probably not a bad idea. But again, if you see on the horizon this situation where the Fed will be aggressively raising rates, the Fed will be uh, will stop their bond buying program. If that situation ever lines up again, we're certainly and it's not a hard one to identify. Um, but uh, I think I guess I would side with Goldman now. What, what's your outlook for th- this year based on what you're seeing? I, I had dinner with a, a friend of mine who runs a pretty big um, concern business concern. And um, he was talking, you know, and their their credit is in great shape, but he had to uh, renew his revolving credit line and talking to his bank about that. And uh, you're just talking about how people, uh, business people are getting hit with significant fees on these credit lines. Uh, you know, the, and the less, obviously, the less credit worthy, the bigger the hit. But, um, it, you know, he seemed to... He, take from that that uh, banks are not expecting uh, good times to be in the offing and so they're sort of um, uh, they're, they're they're making it up with uh, these fee arrangements with respect to existing customers yeah i think if you i'm old enough to remember the 70s and standard of living was much much different i mean we i believe we had three cars at our house none of them actually worked and we just bring parts and duct tape from one car to get one running i see I see a return 
to a much lower standard of, of living. And the reason being is that, so just think of where the Fed and the federal government, this being at loggerheads right now, the Fed wants to be done raising rates. The federal government keeps doing everything it can to make that more difficult with profligate spending and com- being completely irresponsible on their end. Just, uh, it just in, in the, the last six months alone, passed three different bills that are extremely irresponsible in spending inflation fueling. So rates can't particularly go lower because of the government, but they can't particularly go higher because of what you just mentioned, so many people who are having to um, to uh, roll into new credit at much, much higher levels, not just government, but you know, tons of people have revolving debt. So w- when that happens too, so that's going to be a drag on the economy, but the Fed can't lower rates to meet that because the government still keeps spending money stupidly and it, and it creates demand and not demand in the right places. It always kind of shoots off to idiotic places like we saw in them inflating real estate bubbles pretty much twice now. So what I see is a, a recession or something that looks like a recession that could possibly last two or three years. And until we can figure out energy policy number one on the list and make energy cheap for people. That will be the, the thing that, that can bring us out of this, and we're moving in the opposite direction of that right now, obviously. But the thing that could bring us out of that is you know, relying, going more toward nuclear power, going more toward making energy cheap for everybody. And if we can do that, that's how we come out of it, but it's going to take years in my opinion. So, so inflation's not – we're not going to see – you know, three percent uh, in 2024. We're looking at price stability at five percent, five and a half. Percent. I would say I would hope four percent. The thing's really interesting about the latest round of CPI too. Did you see that that um, food and energy are the two highest things? So food and energy are also the two least responsive to rate hikes, unless those rate hikes are going to completely destroy the whole economy with a massive recession. Those things are uh, very, very sensitive to regulation. And guess what's happening? More and more regulation. Just today, Oxfam at that stupid Davos conference started talking about how there should be a windfall tax on food producers globally. So we want more food, yet they're going to punish entrance into that market. So to, to think that they're arguing against um, our best interests, I think, is a very easy argument to make. But those things, remember, those, so food and energy stays high because of stupid government, and those are the things that actually people buy every day. So you, you, don't, you don't buy a used car every day, and you don't buy a house every day. So the fact that those things are coming down in price is all well and good, but that doesn't really affect the average Americans much. So, Jim Murillo, I follow you on Twitter, and uh, you tweeted something yesterday. Boston is one of my favorite cities. Love the people, culture, and history. That said, I plan on mercilessly ridiculing the moronic MLK statue or whatever it's supposed to be. What kind of reaction have you gotten from that tweet? (laughs) I got lots of good reactions. What is going on? I saw someone tweet today. It was the funniest thing. He goes, I move that we shut down modern art for three weeks to figure out what the hell is going on. (laughs) I almost spit my coffee out. But it's so ridiculous. And it's so – the part of it is is commissioning artwork in public spots. You know, if you look at Renaissance artists who try to draw people in with sheer beauty, and now it's like another level of this intellectual snobbery in modern art. Like, you put this out there, and we're supposed to look at it and say, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, you don't understand why it's beautiful? Oh, you're, it's because you don't understand art. And there's an element of that in all this. And this is public money that goes for these things. When I go along the Chicago lakefront, I, when you get, start to get close to the football stadium, there's this one piece of work that's like rusted metal that's oh, yeah. all twisted. Yep. Yeah, what is that even know. all about? I don't know. I stare at it all the time and wonder the same thing. Hey, uh, hey, Yurio, you're, you're, you're a financial analyst. Stay in your lane. 
No, make hamburgers. I you're a financial I analyst. Just stay in your lanes. Hold it, though. I can leave make the art. Leave the art to this the is wolf. government money. Yeah. Well, no there kidding. You go. $10 no kidding. Actually, for that bad boy. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the show um, an op-ed over at Compact Magazine by Seneca Scott, who's actually a cousin of Coretta Scott King, and uh, his commentary. The sculpture is an especially egregious example of the woke machine's callousness and vanity. So the reviews are coming in, and they're pretty uh, decidedly <laughs> against the well, You know what I want to be, though? I would love to be the Boston government officials who commissioned this artwork who were standing there when the, when the sheet came off, and were like, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> right. <they> to... <laughs> right. You have to look at it from this angle to they're see. Like, now, you, now do you see it? Now do you? <laughs> Jim Uriel, financial analyst, Fox Business, proprietor of Brant's Restaurant in Palatine. Jim, thanks as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.